0: Hello everyone, I'm Alexandra Sewitch-Bass, I'm a journalist with The Economist, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, former President of Harvard, and someone who speaks about the, when he speaks about the economy, investors perk up, so it's a great pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, at The Economist, we have a publication called The World Ahead, where journalists make predictions about what's going to happen in the year coming up. Most of us are hopelessly wrong, but it's still a fun exercise. I'd love to do that with you. So if we can do, start by doing long, short on various things, I'd love to get your take. I'll start with something that's been in the news this week about TikTok and whether or not it might be banned in the U.S., long or short TikTok. Long TikTok.
1: Long TikTok meaning at the end of the day, the political system will not decide to ban something that 100 million Americans love.
0: Okay. We're here in Los Angeles, long or short California.
1: Somebody who lived here in part as a child and who has loved uh, California painfully short um taxes, you're not getting booed it's taxes inefficient uh public uh, public services problematic uh, management uh, have to be uh, short China I feel like y- y- well I was long tick I was long TikTok even if I was short the band so I guess it's okay to be short two things in a row. Uh short. Um China had there were 40% fewer babies born in China this year than there were just 6 or 7 years ago. That's not all COVID and it's not the mark of a society that's optimistic about its own future and if others aren't opt- if A society's not optimistic about its own future, why should I be? Another way to look at it is uh, I've been doing this a long time. And the single best way to figure out when an emerging market is going to be a submerging market is when the local plutocrats are trying to move their money out. And my read is that that's the case in China today.
0: I like the term submerging market. What about Ukraine?
1: uh, Long uh, in uh, the war, it's better to fight. It's better to fight wars on your own territory than on others. It's better to have the United States as a friend than to have... uh, others uh, as uh, a friend so I'm long Ukraine in the war and hopeful for economic development in the peace and impatient that we have done more to take it take Russia's reserves which we've already frozen and deploy them on the side of uh, Ukraine financially and supporting uh, Ukraine. But I think we'll get there. And so I'm long uh, Ukraine, but I also think uh, Ukraine needs to be realistic realistic, uh, in its aspirations.
0: Big tech big tech
1: mixed um, things revert things revert uh, to means it's been a spectacular five year te- five or uh, ten uh, years um, Rome wasn't dominant forever and I'm not sure Amazon and Apple will be, uh, uh, will be either. So I think it's not likely to be as spectacular a period as the, spe- as the last 15 years uh, have been. But these are clearly institutions with enormous staying power.
0: And what about fintech?
1: selectively long, uh, generally uh, generally flat to uh, negative. Uh, they're fintechs that are based on good ideas, new technologies, and strong moats. They're fintechs that are based on the rediscovery of traditional financial fallacy borrowing and providing liquidity and investing in the higher return and illiquid and praying. That's a model that fails a lot. And I think there are more failures ahead for uh, that model. But I think there are certain fundamental innovations in data science to guide uh, credit in blockchain to assure uh, trust in uh, technology to take friction out that are likely to be enduring uh, in uh, their impact.
0: And we'll have Stefan Lintner join us in a little bit to talk about what he's doing. Uh, The U.S. dollar, I have just a couple more and then we'll get into some more meaty things
1: uh i'm pretty long uh the the u.s uh, dollar uh currencies don't lose their reserve currency status until the nations that back them have failed and the united states is in a very strong position in the world and it's a wise crack but it's not an entirely inaccurate wise crack to observe that Europe is a museum, Japan is a nursing home, China is a jail, and Bitcoin is an experiment. So the dollar is fortunate in its alternatives. So what does that that make the U.S.? That may contribute to its strength.
0: All right. Uh, Oil.
2: I think
1: I'm probably uh, long. uh, we can't print we can't um we can't deplete the SPRO forever. If the Russia Ukraine war weren't on, the developments in Iran would be front page news every uh day. We have a complex set of relationships with respect to uh Saudi uh Saudi Saudi Arabia and American society is a bit constipated when it comes to moving forward with the production and transmission of uh energy so I would be tend to be long uh oil uh going uh forward probably long uh, natural gas in the United States as you move towards a world where there's something closer to global arbitrage, but um, certainly on a long-term basis, uh, coal is the new tobacco, and I'd be short.
0: Okay, and last but not least, but just for fun, Democrats.
1: I'm I'm long uh, in part because of uh, the alternative, in part because of the alternative. Um, look, I, it, it, the, uh, I think the Republican Party is in a kind of deep and profound uh, disarray. Is it the party of big business, or is it the party that hates business? Is it the party of American strength, or is it the party of uh, isolationism? Is it uh, the party of um, fair elections, or is it the party of uh, no elections? um i think uh i think that's a significant uh strength and uh advantage uh that uh the democrats have if uh they're able to hew to a reasonable center to a uh reasonable uh center-left, but I think there are no guarantees, and I don't think it's 100% the weather that explains the net flow of people from blue states and blue places to red states and red places, and I think that needs to be cautionary for the Democrats.
0: And do you think they're learning those lessons?
1: I think it's some steps forward and some st- I think it's some steps forward and uh some steps uh back but uh on balance I think the Democrats I think the prospects ahead uh for the Democrats appear to be uh appear to me uh to be Uh, pretty good one very important thing a political party needs to be able to do is to police its own extremes and to nominate electable candidates from somewhere not too profoundly distant from the center and the Democrats basically succeeded in doing that in 2022 And the Republicans largely failed in doing that in 2022. And that, I think, has something to say about uh, the near-term future uh, of the the parties.
0: Okay, Let's talk about the economy, your bread and butter. Uh, If we take maybe a two-year long horizon, how rocky is it going to get? And how worried should the people in this room be feeling?
1: I'd be careful out there. <laughs> uh, look, uh, you can make these things incredibly complicated or you can oversimplify them. And I think on balance, it's probably better to oversimplify them. And here's the, oversimplifi- here's the oversimplification we put massive stimulus into an economy and got the flywheel going really fast in 2021. We took an economy with a gap relative to its potential of $300 billion, and we put $2.8 trillion into it, and the bathtub overflowed, and we got a lot of inflation. And sometimes with that inflation, there were a bunch of bottlenecks, and so it looked like we had 8% inflation. And sometimes you had a bunch of bottlenecks fixing themselves, and so you had sectors deflating. And it looked like we had 2 or 3% inflation. But all the way along till now, in some underlying sense, perhaps captured by wage inflation figures, we had a 45 or 5% inflation. And that's what I think we basically are right now. We're a 45 or 5% inflation uh, country. And who knows uh, where exactly... Uh, that goes next, I think there's much more chance that the Fed's going to have to move more than two or three times than that it's not going to have to move two or three times. I like interest rates will be higher. I think that, as Samuel Johnson said about second marriage, that it was the triumph of hope over experience. And I think economic history, Alexandra, teaches something similar with respect to soft landings. There's never been a time when the unemployment rate was below four and the inflation rate was above four and the American economy didn't go into recession within 18 months. So it's my best guess as to what's ahead.
0: So how bad does Uh, it get? uh,
1: I don't think there's the slightest reason to think that we're looking at anything that's like what happened in 2008 or the slightest reason to think that we're looking at something like what happened with Paul Volcker in uh, 1982. But the experience is that every time the uh, unemployment rate goes up by half a percent, it goes up by 2% or more. So I think I'd be looking for unemployment rates to rise by Two two 2.5%, uh, something like that. So on the one hand, that's going to be a fair-sized dislocation. On the other hand, that's nothing like what we went through in 2008 or 1982 when the unemployment rate went up by more like 5%. Okay.
0: What, what are conversations that tech companies should be having if they're not already having that you think people should be thinking about and what action should they be taking?
1: I've learned when I was president of Harvard that our alums, you know, I was spending 70 hours a week thinking about what was right for Harvard and our alums who were spending two hours a month blessed them thinking about what was right for Harvard. I didn't find their advice to always be of enormous value um, (laughs) or enormous accuracy. I guess I think that, I'm not sure if I was running a tech company, I'd necessarily find Professor Summers' advice uh, to be of uh, enormous value. But I guess my uh, advice would be widen the aperture. More things can happen than you think uh, can happen my advice would be that if you're a startup tech company and you're in business 8 years from now there's a very substantial chance that you'll be that you will have been successful and that if you're out of business 9 months from now there's a near zero chance that you will have been <laughs> successful and so don't be greedy, Uh, raise cash, even if you don't particularly like the terms, slow the uh, disbursement of uh, cash. A fair fraction of the investment mistakes I've made in life have been because I really thought it made sense to think in terms of three categories, buy, hold, or sell, rather than in terms of two categories, own or not own. And I was holding positions at scale and value that I wouldn't, within a million years, have bought, and I nonetheless didn't sell them for some set of reasons, some of it would have to do with taxes or illiquidity, but some of it would have to do with my own mishigas. And so, sort of take a view more frequently of if you were starting again, where would you be? And if you're somewhere that's substantially different from that, think about adjusting. I tell or encourage or push every organization for profit or not for profit that I'm involved with to do exercises that are of the character of pre-mortems or the opposite i say uh if we were all getting together 4 years from now and drinking in commiseration of how it all failed 2 years Two years, ago, two years before then, what's the most plausible story we would tell as to how that happened? And then how do we avoid that? And then I also try to do the opposite exercise. Suppose we had been an unbelievable, phenomenal success four years from now, and uh, we were worth 20 times what we're worth now, what's the mo- most plausible way in which that could have happened? And by forcing the conclusion and then telling the story rather than telling stories and seeing what conclusions you get, I find it tends to force contemplation of a wider range of possibilities. And especially at a moment like this, it seems to me anything you can do to widen the range of possibilities that you're thinking about, is very very valuable
0: to a lot of techies uh when they think about washington they think that you know the antichrist is alive and well and her name is lena khan um to what extent do you think that tech policy under biden and lena khan has been harmful or helpful to tech and how do you see it
1: playing out i think it's hard to know how this is all going to play out I have found a variety of the antitrust actions in recent years to be highly surprising which is a euphemism for totally misguided (laughs) Um, coming from both uh the FTC and uh from the Justice Department
0: and misguided in what
1: on, on way? the other hand, on the other hand, if your opposition, there are worse things than having an extremely determined opposition that is constantly overreaching and therefore stumbling and failing. so I'm not sure how great a threat. This is uh, to uh, the tech industry. But in general, my view is that consumer welfare is exactly the right standard for antitrust. That one should be supporting competition in order to produce the lowest possible prices for consumers including through uh, the greatest efficiency. And if you're talking about the well-being of competitors as a value, except for how that affects competition and prices for consumers, you're probably in the wrong place. If you're talking about who owns the companies, whether it's public or private equity, you're probably talking about something that's not right. If you're failing to recognize the importance of efficiency, you're probably making a mistake. And I don't know that much about the hotel industry, but I kind of know that nobody would check into a hotel that they weren't going to be allowed to check out of And so it seems to me that if you want people to enter uh, startups of various kinds in a world where 90-plus percent of startup exits are sales and acquisitions, you wouldn't want to shut down that market if you didn't want to be shutting down the market for supporting new startups. And if you have new... and Having new startups seems to me to be central to having the kind of competitive economy that we want uh, to have. So I'm all for competition, I'm all for consumers, but I think we've got to be more thoughtful than it has sometimes seemed to me we were being in how we go about that.
0: You were really early to predict inflation. I think the White House responded by saying you were, quote-unquote, flat-out wrong. We now know how it's turned out. But what's something that you believe today that's against the orthodoxy, economic or otherwise?
1: I think I'm a little less optimistic that inflation is on a declining path than some others are but I also think that I am ultimately optimistic about uh, the United States, that I say all kinds of negative and alarmist uh, things, but I say them in the spirit that I'm part of a very long American tradition of self-denying prophecy that the reason the United States economy and the United States society has been so pr- resilient is that we have this capacity as a country for the alarmist Jeremiah, which then is part of everybody getting anxious, and that fixes the problem. It happened after Sputnik. It happened after the every issue of the Harvard Business Review in 1990 said that the Cold War was over and Japan had won. It happened after Jimmy Carter declared a crisis in the national spirit. Happened after Patrick Henry said in 1792 that the spirit of the revolution was lost. So if you step back, I've spent a lot of time since I left government traveling, and I would rather be dealing with as grave as they are, the set of challenges and problems that we face than those faced by any other country. And so ultimately, I'm an optimist about the United States.
0: Excellent. to pause quickly, I want to invite Stefan on to continue the conversation. One question that I have for both of you is what we're going to see later on this year uh, at, in terms of political wrangling with the debt ceiling. Welcome, Stefan. Um, Stefan is the CEO of GCO. Um, what do you both anticipate, and Stefan, I'll start with you if you don't mind, how is the negotiation going to play out later this year? And you have a start-up that um, is betting heavily on the future of treasuries. Um, so how will this affect T-Bells?
2: Before I answer that, I just wanted to react to, I was listening in the back and uh, Larry saying everyone should be, I mean, long the dollar, the economy is facing inflation advice to startups um, to, and, and founders to, to think about the one mistake they could make. I, I'd like to say that the one thing you should do with high-yield right now, obviously, is invest and deploy your cash in high-yielding instruments, treasuries. That would be the advice that I, I, would ever, I think everyone should hear. That's what we do at Chico. It's in that context that um, we're, we're, um, we should be talking about the debt ceiling. So I, in, in, from, from, uh, from our standpoint, um, I worry about the volatility that it's going to create in the market. I think we all think that it's going to. Uh, hopefully, the, there's enough at stake for the United States that the um, the ceiling itself will be resolved. There's a bigger question as to why we have a ceiling. I think Larry and I discussed it earlier. Um, I just hope that it doesn't create too much volatility in the market. There's enough going on right now. Enough worries for everyone that a quick resolution would be very, very good.
0: Larry, how do you see it playing
1: out? I think this will work itself through. I think uh, George Will said something very smart in a column some years ago. He said that in a democracy, fear does the work of reason. Reason with respect to defaulting on the U.S. debt is self-evident. It's a bad idea. We sometimes have some disagreements in our family. My kids spend more money than... I thought they should have spent on their credit card. And then we disagree as to whether they're going to pay, I'm going to pay, I'm going to lend them money, and they're going to pay, sort of, but they're going to pay me back, I hope, whatever. But one thing we never consider is that the family's not going to pay the visa organization. We just don't ever consider that. And that seems to me to be the right approach for the United States to take with respect to its... Uh, uh, debt. That's reason. But fear does the work of reason. And so we need for there to be a bunch of alarm before this will get itself resolved. And so my guess is the alarm will build, people will become fearful, and then it will work. The only risk, and it is a risk, is that Henry Kissinger famously asked the question almost 50 years ago, What phone number do I call to call Europe? Because he wanted to get the European view, not a clamor from Italy and France and Germany and whatnot. And there is the question today, what number do I call to call the Republican Party? (laughs) If you wanted to call whatever else you thought about her, whatever else you thought. If you wanted to know where the House Democrats were and you negotiated with Nancy Pelosi, You were negotiating with the House Democrats. It's not so clear that there is a number you can call to talk to the congressional Republicans today. Do you think it's Marjorie Taylor Greene? And when, well, that's the question. That's the, it's not Marjorie Taylor Greene, but because of Marjorie Taylor Greene, it might not be Kevin McCarthy either. And that's how things fail. Things fail when you can't have, negotiation. So I think this will work its way through, but I think you can't be 100% certain.
0: I want to zoom in a little bit more to fintech. We talked about it earlier. Um, to, to to what extent uh, do you think, the view used to be that fintech firms were going to displace traditional banks and traditional firms. It's now not looking as obvious that that's true, that they're, A, we're seeing a lot of trouble with some newer players, and B, the older players are still alive and well, even if their investors are sometimes upset with them, like we've seen this week with Goldman. Uh, how do you see this playing out, Stefan? And I'd love to hear your view too, Larry.
2: Well, um, when I left Goldman, I was at Goldman for many years. Um, I had thought about this for a long time. And our view was, if you really want to bring disruption, you need to build on three pillars. You need to embrace regulation. You just can't bypass it. Money is as old as the world. The issues that we're seeing are the same as before always come back doesn't matter what the medium is doesn't matter if you call it a coin or you call it a bill or you call it a security the the laws are there for a reason because of all the mistakes that happened before that's our view so you need to be regulated so become a bank that's what we did at You need to rebuild the technology. That's where the tech and fintech comes from. Fin is actually the license, if you think of it. You need, a li- you need the te- modern technology. That takes time to build, and it's not easy. And you can't rebuild everything. It's a massive, if you think of finance, the amount of transactions that go through, the size of banks. You can't just rebuild in one day, so you have to do it bits by bits and pick areas. So at geco we rebuilt the bottoms up for the ledgers, and we're operating our own bank. And then uh, you need to really, to Larry's, summer, uh, to Larry's point earlier, in terms of... Do you go into lending, do you do what banks used to do, or pre-regulations, lend short-term, long-term? You have to pick your battle within fintechs. So at GICO, what we did was to to really focus on, on building a safe American bank that deploys people's cash into Treasury bills, keep them safe, and that gives us a wedge over time as an infrastructure play for others to build on top. And I think what fintech's been missing so far not to sell too much our product, but it's really a layer like what GICO is, a regulated, scalable bank that others can build on, like an AWS. And that's missing in the ecosystem right now. Bitcoin is, to your point, a, uh, an experiment. There's a lot of great infrastructure, and you'll hear more about that on the next speaker um, being built there. Um, so I think what fintech has push, has proven that there's real demand for innovation in finance. We all know how painful it can be to fill a form at the bank but the infrastructure underneath from a regulatory and uh, technology standpoint hasn't matured enough yet to service it.
0: And Larry, you can answer the FinTech question or uh, we can expand or move on to crypto and kind of your prediction of how this period for crypto will be remembered and what the future holds.
1: I think on uh, FinTech, it's important to remember that if you think about this in a broad enough way, This is something that's been happening for a long time. Blackstone has a substantially greater value than uh, Goldman Sachs. Visa has a substantially greater value than uh, Citigroup. And BlackRock has a substantially greater value than all sorts of other uh, financial organizations. So there are always innovations of new mastercard too It could go on with the list there are always going to be innovations fueled in part uh by uh technology that are going to affect the value of uh existing uh incumbents but not all such investments uh, succeed, and I think one of the lessons that I've learned over time and that comes uncomfortably to professors like me is uh, the idea is only 8% of it. And the other 92% of it is uh, the execution uh, of it. So. I think there are going to be very substantial successes of uh, fintech. I think if you think about it, um, as it becomes possible with technology to do more and more things, the choice of which things are going to get done and where investments are going to be made And how people are going to share in the benefits of those investments and whether it's going to be possible to make connections among those who don't have a prior relationship or basis for trust of each other. Those things are going to become that much more important in the future. And if you think about it, that's the ultimate function of uh, financial intermediation. So I think that just as in the early days of transportation tech, there were 75 car companies and most of them didn't endure, but a lot of fortunes were made. There was a lot of selling out and there was something very profound that changed the world. That's kind of how I think about uh, the broad fintech Uh, ecology right now, and I think the kind of work that Stefan and his colleagues are doing and many others are doing directed at removing frictions is uh, going to be profoundly important, whether it's frictions in maintaining liquidity or it's frictions in getting title insurance, or whether it's frictions in making a payment at a store, or whether it's frictions in selling uh, a house, it is uh, incredibly valuable, not zero-sum work, but absolutely the opposite, to take frictions out of things. And I think that's a lot of what's involved in the fintech revolution.
0: Excellent. Well, I think we've kind of as perfectly teed up the next session as possible. And unfortunately, we're out of time. But thank you both so much for your thoughts.
1: Thank you.